WCNC Charlotte. This is Flashpoint, where power and politics collide and the tough questions get asked and answered. Thanks for joining us here on Flashpoint. I'm Ben Thompson. We are approaching the 10th anniversary of a study that put Charlotte in the spotlight for all the wrong reasons. Back in 2014, researchers from Harvard ranked Charlotte last for economic mobility among the 50 largest metro areas in the country, ahead where the city stands now in addressing economic inequality. But first, this week, a bipartisan group of South Carolina lawmakers taking another step towards getting a hate crimes bill passed. Right now, get this, the Palmetto State, one of just two states without a law in the books. But even though legislation is making progress, there is some skepticism coming from the governor's mansion. Joining us now is South Carolina Representative Wendell Gilliard. He's been really at the, the forefront of trying to get hate crimes bill passed in the Palmetto State. Representative, thanks for coming on. We appreciate it. Thanks for having me. So as a person who's been at the forefront, you tell me, why is South Carolina one of only two states without a hate crime bill on the books? Well, definitely, uh, you know, it starts with leadership. Uh, the, the, the bill has historically passed the House, uh, which is 124 members in there. Uh, and for the second time, we have sent it over at the Senate. So it, it, it's in the hands uh, of the senators over there. Uh, needless to say, uh, look like we do have bipartisan support, but we don't have enough of that in the Senate. It's only two senators now that's holding the bill up uh, from moving forward over there. So we're trying to get uh, our constituents, the citizens of uh, South Carolina, uh, to contact these senators and ask them to remove their names off the objection list uh, so the bill can move forward to the floor of the Senate. I, I know this is personal for you. You are somebody who lost friends, the mass shooting at Mother Emanuel AME Church nearly nine years ago. Uh, is it personally frustrating for you that, that more has not been done since then? Oh, it is. I mean, you know, every time uh, it comes and goes. Uh, this year, it'll be the ninth year uh, uh, waiting uh, for the bill uh, to become law. Uh, and we went as far as uh, naming the bill after one of uh, the you know, after one of the senators over there, Senator Clemente Pinckney, uh, is the, the bill is now being called, and we would at least start in giving honor to the senator uh, and the the eight other members, uh, you know, uh, citizens. Uh, that at least some of the senators over there would have said, "Hey, you know, we really have to do this. Uh, there's no physical impact." Uh, we have to join the other 48 states. Uh, let's get this uh, thing done. And even the late senator uh, wife, uh, Mrs. Uh, Pinckney, uh, she joined in with this effort. Uh, but it, it's sad to say it's just a few senators uh, that's holding the bill up. We have to send a message to the country and to the world that we're not going to tolerate this. Um, one story we've covered here a lot locally, it was a, a Charlotte couple that was terrorized by racial slurs and a burning cross at their retirement home down in Myrtle Beach. Um, would you hope a hate crimes bill would, would crack down on, on situations like that? Well, well definitely. You know, it, it, we're not saying any bill, uh, any, it, it, you know, any bill is never solved all. But if the other 48 states has sent a message uh, to the country and to the world, uh, then surely South Carolina uh, and I always tell people by virtue alone, we should have been the first state out of the gate uh, with a hate crime law. When you look at the history uh, of South Carolina, yeah, there'll, there'll be many more hate crimes, of course. But as you well know, uh, at the federal level, 
uh, the, the, you know, they have a backlog of hate crimes. Having a hate crime law in the state of South Carolina would help us expedite uh, these cases uh, more. And, and, and I think it's, it, they know it's much needed. And uh, we're, ne we're never going to give up the fight. Well, this past week, the governor there uh, said he had some concerns about what the hate crime bill would mean for, for privacy. He worries folks would could have their First Amendment rights violated as investigators comb through person's state of mind. What's your response to that? Uh, that's just political rhetoric. Uh, sad to say he's taken that position. Uh, you know, here just uh, in the past, we've had two bills uh, that we have passed. As you well know, the Samantha L. Jogerson bill back in 2019. We now call it the Uber law, uh, where the young lady unfortunately met her demise in such a horrific way by some guy uh, posing as an Uber driver. But that bill did not take long to become law, even with the, the Garvin's law. Uh, that's the bill that is the sexual extortion bill. Uh, one of our representatives lost his son uh, uh, over the uh, website. Uh, he was lowered into position, and, and, and sad to say, he lost his life uh, through the internet. Uh, that bill uh, now has become law in 2023. Now here we are, with nine lives, waiting nine years this year, and the governor would give us some type of lip service like that is just insulting. It's just so insulting. Okay, and even one of the uh, the, the, the state reps. That first voted against the hate crime bill. Uh, and, you know, when this thing had unfortunately happened in his family with his son, he came to me and he said, "You know what? Uh, well, if that bill ever comes back here, I'm gonna support it." Now, you see, he, he gets it now. And, and people, you know, this is the South. Uh, we have this mentality. You know, we're always last in the things that are first, and first in the things that are last. Well, that has some validity to it, but it's going to take long, you know, it's going to take strong leadership, people with backbone, uh, willing to do what's right. Every time a hate crime happens in South Carolina, the first question comes to mind, why aren't we on the side of righteousness and justice? Why? It, it, it's just no excuse. So all that said, uh, last question, are you hopeful that something like this can get passed this year? I am hopeful. Uh, if it don't get passed this year, we'll be back on that cycle uh, where we'd have to uh, introduce the bill once again. In the House, we'd have to go back and reverse and go through the process again. But we will fight. We will fight, you know, until this bill becomes law in the state of South Carolina. We have to do it to honor the senator, the eight of the citizens that died along with him, it's no way in hell we should ever give up this fight. South Carolina, only one of two states without a hate crime bill. All right, South Carolina Representative Wendell Gilliard. Representative, thanks for coming on. We do appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Next on Flashpoint, economic inequality still an issue plaguing the Queen City. Where Charlotte stands 10 years after a monumental study. Welcome back to Flashpoint. In 2014, a revolutionary study showed the Queen City ranked last in opportunities for economic mobility. The so-called Chetty study, named after the project's author, painted just a grim picture of the limited opportunity to escape poverty here. And local leaders say 10 years later, there is still a lot of room for improvement. Joining us now is Winston Robinson. He's the founder of the Applesauce Group, working to promote generational wealth and home ownership in the black community. Winston, good to see you. Hey, man. 
Um, so let's begin with economic disparities here in uh, Charlotte. How big of a problem is it right now from where you see it? So the weight of racism, of systemic racism, it's physical. You feel it. This is something that is very much a part of your everyday life. So it isn't just uh, the disparities we see that are so surface level. It's the weight of the actual system and how it impacts your life. So that is so deeply, deeply ingrained. You know, it, it's, we can do things to remedy certain outcomes. However, yeah. we still have to make sure we dismantle the, the system of sentiment. Because uh, it's the systems that are part of the pervasive problem beyond just an individual or a cultural thing. It's, right, a, it's a system is hard to um, tackle and address. Uh, Ten years ago, the study came out from Harvard, ranking Charlotte bottom of the list. Um, I think for some people, it was a shock. For a lot of other people, it was not a shock at all. Uh, have you seen any improvement since then? Uh, no, I'm, well, I, I see one thing I will say is I appreciate, specific to Charlotte, how we responded to the Chetty study. You know, I don't know what uh, the 40 through 49 did as far as the list, but Charlotte, we, we tackled it and we came up with the uh, Leading on Opportunity uh, Council. And I think, well, I believe wholeheartedly the compass, the product, which was produced by that council can be transformative. So I appreciate the approach that Charlotte has. And again, this is, this is work that we're in for the long haul. So for me to say, I see changes now, I don't even wanna create that false sense of hope, but I appreciate the drive towards that change. Um, what do you see as next steps then uh, to, to make this actionable and real? Um, and address some of these in a meaningful way, not just to make you feel good, but a meaningful change. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a call a thing a thing guy. You know, if we're going to tackle this, we have to face it. And it's not a comfortable conversation. However, it also shouldn't be as tough a conversation as we uh, make it feel with the tension and awkwardness. These are a reflection of systems that have been around since 1619, you know, we weren't here. So we're just responding to the conditions that were created around us. Therefore, I think it is up to us to do something about it. And it's, it's not personal. So, you know, yeah, let's just dismantle the nonsense. I think a lot of times when people that look like us have this conversation, it can feel very personal. And, and it's not, to your point, this is a history, this is a shared history that, that, that this country has gone through. And, and we gotta talk about it to get through it because right. um, uh, to otherwise avoid it doesn't address the issue. Right. Um, another study came out, UNC Charlotte, that, that said that the median net worth of white households is about 10 times that of black households. Explain to me how that unfolds in the city of Charlotte. What, what does that look like? And, and how does that affect the city of Charlotte as a whole? So again, just to what that means, the wealth gap. Yeah. If you think about it, black people on paper by, via uh, policy, we have only been able to participate the way other Americans participate in the home ownership process since 1968. My father, who is 76, was an adult in 1968. Yeah. The, the options he had for home ownership before that were in areas that were redlined, where our federal government said, now these are problematic areas, banks, 
you might not want to give loans here. We made a decision as a nation to subsidize the middle class. It excluded a group of people. That group of people was us. So again, when you have a legacy of uh, other groups being able to participate in a system to generate and generate and generate and build wealth for so long, then now we can kind of do it. 1968 is on paper. Yeah. Practice may be the early 80s, but still right now there's a sentiment in America that if black people are in a space, that is enough to devalue the, uh, the land, the, the, the property value. That's enough to shrink the property value. And uh, that's a sentiment. Um, that brings me to the idea of generational wealth. You touched on it in that, in that re remark, but when we talk about home ownership, one of the biggest indicators of generational wealth, wealth comes from home ownership. And when you have a, a group of society that's not getting to partake in that, or at least hasn't over the years like other parts of society, it has a profound impact. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And what that, so I, I give you a personal story from my own journey. Uh, when my wife and I, made the step to take our first home, we had to be scrappy yeah. to you know, build our down payment, uh, we'll gather our down payment, save a lot, sacrifice, didn't take a lot of good dates during that period. And uh, while we were vetting lenders, uh, one of the lenders uh, w was a white guy, and he said, why don't you just ask your parents? And I was offended. I was like, wait, what? You know, how dare you? Because they work hard. They're still working, you know, late in age. And uh, I didn't know that was a thing. I, I've never seen that or heard of that uh, before where, you know, you just get a down payment from, from your loved ones. I'm like, what? Yeah. So I, I was taken aback, blown away. And those are the small, simple things that we never have, we never talk about, or we, we don't have the discussion. So those are the hurdles as well as other factors that create the disparity in home ownership, therefore the wealth gap. Uh, quickly, tell me about Applesauce Group. What are you guys trying to do? Oh, Applesauce Group. So Applesauce Group, we are... Uh, explain the name for one. Explain the name. It's like medicine when you explain it. Absolutely. So the name came about when uh, I had a two-year-old son. He's six now. Uh, during a pandemic, I wanted to kind of change the course of my life to do something more meaningful. At the time, my son had to take a medicine that he hated, and we gave it to him through applesauce. And I was just getting the old parental trick. So yeah. the foundation, the business model is Applesauce Group will show you the greatest time of your life with these festivals, with experiences, with events. However, on site, we have resources that will meet the needs of community. But again, it's not like, so the idea too is, I would believe you more if you tried to convince me less. I don't want you to feel like you're walking into a timeshare presentation. Yeah. So yeah, all organic, good times. Sort of like the medicine through the apple Absolutely. <laughs> Next event, April 27th, April 27th. The Great West Side Fish Fry Festival. Where is that? West Complex, 1600 West Trade Street. Winston, thanks for coming on. I appreciate, appreciate it, man. Welcome back to Flashpoint, the Uptown Skyline will be Changing, Charlotte City leaders are approving Wells Fargo's request for new signage on what was once the Duke Energy Building. The rezoning petition proposed two signs, one on each side of the top of the building like you see right there. City leaders also voted unanimously to approve a 12-story high-rise coming to Plaza Midwood. The apartment building would be on Commonwealth Avenue. WCNC Charlotte's Julia Kaufman takes a closer look at the growth happening in the popular Charlotte neighborhood. 
Replacing this parking lot on Commonwealth, it's going to be the tallest building in the neighborhood. Many people are excited for the growth, but others fear the future high rise will dwarf Plaza Midwood. Plaza Midwood is facing growing pains. The latest growth spurt, Charlotte City Council approving 175 apartments with ground floor commercial space next to the Julian apartments. It just seems a bit jarring. The plans allow a maximum height of 126 feet, about 12 stories on this lot that's just shy of an acre. Well, I am very happy with where we're at. Developers shortened their original plans from 150 feet, but for many neighbors, accepting the high rise is a tall order. I, mean, I feel like it sort of overshadows the kind of mixture of urban and also like family neighborhoods. To compare, the Commonwealth mixed use development being built on Central Avenue is about seven stories tall on 12 acres. The changes are fueling a fear that Plaza could lose its eclectic identity. It just seems like it's not going to fit the aesthetic very well. Mayor Pro Tem Dante Anderson says growth is inevitable and thoughtful development will take Plaza to new heights. As we move forward with development in Plaza Midwood and the adjacent neighborhoods, there will be more projects that bring density. People are also concerned about the lack of parking. Planners point out that the future Silver Line will have two stops near this location. In Plaza Midwood, Julia Kaufman, WCNC Charlotte. Up next here on Flashpoint, foster kids sleeping in government offices. And now state lawmakers are finally stepping in to get something done. Welcome back to Flashpoint, a harsh reality for dozens of foster kids in the system. Some of them sleep in government offices because they have nowhere else to go. And now state lawmakers are finally stepping in to do something about it. WCNC Charlotte reporter Michelle Bowden first broke the story last year and has been seeking solutions ever since. We know it's not an easy fix, but the state is finally acknowledging it is not okay to have foster care kids sleeping in a government building. The question, though, could there be a fix anytime soon? It's just the saddest story. It's still happening. There are times where kids are sleeping on mattresses in the government facility. Almost a year after we first learned foster kids with nowhere to go were sleeping in government buildings, the state is admitting it is still happening, and it's happening a lot. This state-issued press release confirms, quote, an average of 32 kids are living in DSS offices each week. It is devastating, and it has been devastating to see around the country, not just here, where, you know, social workers are working around the clock to figure out where these kids are going to go. Nicole Taylor heads up CFK, a nonprofit that works to recruit, train, and support foster parents. She and her team are gearing up to take on a bigger role as the state releases emergency cash to area counties to help find homes for kids in DSS custody. Mecklenburg County will get almost $80,000 this year and more than double that next year. It's encouraging to see the state stepping forward to say, hey, we're acknowledging this is a problem. A county spokesperson told us no one would talk to us on camera about the problem or the money the state is sending, but... In an email, they told us county leaders are working on streamlining the process to becoming a foster parent. When we talk about streamlining anything in child welfare, that's exciting. What does that look like? For us, when we're recruiting and training and helping to provide um, support for foster families, we want to make it as easy for them as possible. 
At the county budget retreat last month, DSS's director told county leaders. But the need currently outweighs the capacity. As of December last year, there were 423 kids in DSS custody in Mecklenburg County and fewer than 100 licensed foster care homes. And what we know is that right now our, our, our network lacks the full capacity to give support to each and every one of those children. Foster care is complicated when people say the system is broken. It is broken. Also in that email to us, a county spokesman told us they are finally getting ready to roll out an awareness campaign about becoming a foster parent. That's something they first talked to us about a year ago. They say it is finally going to roll out next month. Reporting in Charlotte, Michelle Bowden, WCNC Charlotte. Just a stunning state of things. Wow. Folks, come interact with us on social media. If there's something you want us to talk about, let us know. And as always, remember to listen and subscribe to our podcast. You can find it wherever you get yours. We'll see you back here next weekend.